Chapter Twenty Six of The Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty Six. All this time there were little flocks of whales out in the west fjord, wandering restlessly hither and thither, blowing and spouting. The great quantity of herring in the fjord had excited them, but they dared not go in. The ships, the boats, and all the commotion in there kept them out in the open sea, but at the same time made them remain in the neighborhood. They only took little turns of a hundred miles or so up and down to keep watch, so to speak. They went southward off Helgeland, then westward off Varey and Rust, for the great Atlantic was refreshing in a storm, but they had to return, and darted back right over the maelstrom the water foaming about their jaws, and along the Lofoten wall again, for the fjord in there was alive with all manner of delights. The sea is a good conductor of sound, however, and they heard the noise in there for a distance of many miles. They must have patience a little longer, but how long should they wait? One morning a vessel on her way from Svolvar to the fjord saw the shoals of herring going out to sea again. There was a broad river of small herring across the west fjord, and over it flocks of screaming white and grey birds. The whales were there now, accompanying the shoals like sheep-dogs that run beside the flock. They were having an easy time now, for it did not need take many turns of their tail to keep up with the herring, and all they had to do was to open their mouths and take what they wanted, move slowly along and take another mouthful. Several miles out to sea, other whales were seen spouting on their way in, and millions and millions of herring were going west again over the endless plains of ocean. One day the shoal will sink, however. The whale dives and can still reach it, but the shoal goes still lower, and then the whale cannot follow. It can only feel which way it goes, and moves slowly along above it, and then in the morning, when the shoal generally goes to the surface for a little, the whale can have a good breakfast. At last, however, the herring descends to depths from which it does not rise again that year, and the whale has a period for rest and digestion. It lies on the surface of the water like a ship without rigging, and perhaps takes a nap, for it is rather tiring to go on feasting for several days. Then one morning it is roused by a peculiar movement in the water, and opening its small eyes, it is instantly wide awake and listening. The sea gives warning of an all-too-well-known enemy, the Grampus. It is still some miles off, but it is already on the track of its prey. With a powerful stroke of its tail, the whale takes to flight, but the Grampus is a good rider, and in a few hours there is a wild chase through the boundless ocean. The day after the departure of the herring, the other fish had also left the fjord. From boat to boat the shout was repeated, Have you got anything? And the answer was always the same. No, have you? No, there isn't any here. Nor here either. He is gone. Yes, the fishing is over. Yes, it's over. The dense fleet of ships and boats dispersed, but as it was too early to go home, most of them went out to their usual fishing station, 
where there might be a chance of a little extra fishing during the next few weeks. Once more the fjord lay empty and desolate. The tide rushed in at the flow and out at the ebb, but it no longer wore away anchor cables, and here and there along the deserted shore might be seen a plank hut that the men had not troubled to take away with them. On the day when the seal sailed out along the Lofoten wall again, Kristaver was a well-to-do man. He had lost nets and rope, one of his comrades was dead, and he had gone through much hardship, but in his breast-pocket lay a bulky pocket-book, full of hundred-crown notes. He had never in his life carried so much money in his pockets. It amounted to thousands. When all his men had received their share, there would still be a large sum for himself, and even when the bank and the tradesmen were paid, a very fair amount would be left. A fisherman who owns boat and fishing gear for five men, and has a savings bank book lying at the bottom of his chest. What do you say to that, Maria? Do you still want us to give up the sea? And there might still be a little more money to come in before the fishing ended. The weather had become milder, and the sun shone in the middle of the day, and here they came, sailing along in a fresh breeze with wealth on board. Cornelis Gumon sang. They no longer talked about the Leso's Hilla. If a man dies, or is drowned, or a boat disappears in a storm, it is sad, but it is an everyday occurrence among fishermen, and in a few days there is no more mention of it. They would miss the Leso's when they had to row hard, for the sixth oar could not be used, and when they got home, when they had to walk up the beach and be welcomed, they would be one man less than when they set sail. The surface of the wide open west fjord was covered with sails. They looked tiny out there, just like a swarm of insects that had settled on the water with their wings raised. As Kristaver stood at the helm, he felt a peculiar affection for the seal. He felt secure in his ownership. She was really his, and henceforth they would be companions, they two. He knew her, too, almost, so that he could do what he liked with her, no matter where the wind was. Perhaps she still had some hidden caprice in her that might play him a trick some day, but they had had no sailing for life or death yet. The number of boats gradually grew less as some of them turned off to their old fishing stations, while others went on. Some had come all the way from Vare and Rust. Beacons and harbour lights were being lighted in the red evening glow when the sea-flower and the seal entered the sound together. "'You're a millionaire now, I suppose,' Kristaver shouted across to Jakob. Demetol with a limp looked all black hair and beard, but there was a little patch of face beaming out from beneath his southwester. "'Ha, ha!' he cried. "'That's saying a good deal.' but I will say that things have looked worse than they do now. And the two headmen laughed. Was it strange that Jacob had done well? Now people could see once more that if they were threatened with a black year in Lofoten, all they had to do was to go and sell their boat and nets to Jacob, and then it would be all right. A little while ago there was no fish in the sea, but the four boats gangs that sold themselves to Jacob knew what they were doing. Money? 
No, he had no money, but they agreed about the price and kept their boats and nets as pledges, for in any case they were going to work as half-share men under him. Well, Jakob bought, and what happened? There was splendid fishing before you could turn round. In the fjord he worked with five boats. He was no longer a fisherman, he was an admiral. He had paid for the boats and nets in no time, and the men who had formerly owned them did not know whether to be glad or sorry. It was true they made a good deal as half-share men, but if they had not sold they would have made double as much. Jakob must have made an enormous amount by this transaction. He was padded all over with paper money, and seemed to grow fatter every day. And some thought it was a good thing, and others that it was a pity that he never could keep his money. After the men's recent experiences the old hut seemed almost too fine. It had walls of timber, windows, a table, and chairs, and there were bunks with soft straw to lie upon, just as a king would have it. They would live like gentlemen now. The first thing that the crew of the seal did was to set about a thorough cleaning of their own persons. "'No one is going to bed until he has washed himself and changed,' said Henry Robben, and of course no one disputed for a moment that in a matter of this kind he was the head man over them all. They lighted the stove and made the hut so hot that people who opened the door with the intention of coming in gasped for breath and fled. That was their lookout. "'Just keep it up,' said Canales, pushing still more wood into the stove. Why, they had suffered enough from the cold lately, and now there was plenty of peat and wood. "'Keep it up,' cried Henry Robin from the kitchen, where he was getting hot water ready. The first proceeding was a difficult one. The sea-boots had to come off. The men's feet were swollen, and the boots themselves had a discouraging appearance, after having waded about for weeks in sea-water, fish-slime, and snow, without being greased or dried. The leather was a grayish-white color, cracked and wrinkled, and resembled the face of a sick person. They had to come off, however. The man sat upon a stool, while another stood behind him grasping his arms at the shoulder and pulling backward, and a third seized the boot by the heel and toe and pulled with all his might in the opposite direction. "'Pull away! Oh, ho!' Both exerted their utmost strength, and it looked as if they would tear their comrade in half, but in the end the boot yielded with a creaking sound. Then the hair-sock came into view. It had once been white, now it was black and smelled of sea-water, leather, and perspiration. It was pulled off from the top downward and revealed the stocking. What the color of that had been when it was young it was impossible to say, but now it was a brownish-gray. If it had to be peeled off it would hurt. It seemed to have stuck to the foot with a mixture of sea-water and blood. It must come off, however, and it was turned carefully down over the leg, which was red all over. It stuck and brought the skin off, but it had to come off. At last a human foot appeared, swollen and sore, with marks of wool and sea-water, the heel blue, the toes purple, and numb with the cold. The heat made them begin to tingle and prick, 
and their joints were stiff. The tub was brought in, full of hot water. "'Keep up the fire,' said Canelas. The hot water made the feet hurt in earnest, and the men howled. It was like knives all over the body, and yet scrubbing their feet clean seemed to do them good internally, as if their very heart were the cleaner for it. They showed one another their frostbites and gained a little sympathy. "'My, that looks bad,' said one. "'Wait a bit, and you will see something worse.' It was a good thing they had gall brandy in their chests, for there was nothing like it for frost in the limbs. More hot water, and clothes off. "'Keep up the fire,' said Canelas, for it was no joke to have to strip to the skin. First the blouse and the homespun waistcoat, then the big knitted woolen jersey, and after it the woven woolen shirt, and at last the white linen shirt. Was there a good fire? For Henry Robin insisted on their taking off the innermost woolen shirt. Very well. So at last they had got down to their bare body, which they stroked with their swollen hands, because it was so white and sensitive to cold after always being shut in behind so much wool, and not having felt fresh air for ever so long. Now the washing began, and the soap lathered on chest and arms. The men scrubbed one another's backs. Oh, rub harder! It did them good. Keep up the fire, said Canelas. When Peter Sansa and his men came, they had to go through the same process, but Peter wanted to be alone out in the kitchen when he washed himself. The gall brandy kept going the round. Many a frost-bitten foot throughout the length of the Lofoten wall had some that evening. It was strange to look one another in the face. They were all so clean and looked so nice. They might all have been bridegrooms, old as well as young. Many a headman slept that night with a well-filled pocket-book on his breast, fastened to a cord round his neck. It was not customary to settle with the others in the boat until the fishing ended. Arnt Osan slept alone in the uppermost bunk and he dreamed that Eleazar's hilla came and wanted his old place beside him. He began to undress down on the floor, pulled off his boots, then his trousers, and lighted his pipe. "'Make room,' he said to Arndt, and then he came up, though Arndt knew perfectly well that he was dead and sent south in a coffin. Arndt cried out in his sleep and started up. "'Thank goodness! It was only a dream.' and he could sink back again and go to sleep. End of chapter 26